Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Learn to Love podcast, your guide to everything love, sex, intimacy, and relationships. Each week, your host, Zach Beach, interviews new experts on love, including couples therapists, relationship coaches, sex educators, and best-selling authors. Learn the best tips and cutting-edge wisdom to better love yourself, others, and the world. Thanks so much for joining us. We hope you enjoy the show. Welcome to the Learn to Love podcast, everyone. I am your host, Zach Beach, and I'm here with the incredible dating coach and researcher, Marie Twin. Hi, Marie, and welcome to the show. Hi, Zach. Thank you for having me. Today, we're going to be talking about mindful dating. And for those that don't know, Marie Twin is a PhD researcher at the California Institute of Integral Studies, and she is the founder of Love Insight, a mindful dating coaching practice where she helps people of all ages, genders, and orientations navigate the path of intimate love with a growth-oriented mindset. As a psychology scholar and dating expert, she brings her clients to find clarity and emotional healing within the dating process and teaches them practical skills to create meaningful connections. Her research focuses on the experience of compersion in non-monogamous relationships. How are you today, Marie? I'm well, Zach. Thank you so much. Thanks so much for coming on. And I have so many questions. And my first one is about your research. Mm -hmm. So you're working on compersion. And I wanted to begin with that because a few, a number of years ago, when Learn to Love was doing a lot more in-person events, I had a panel discussion entitled, What Polyamory and Monogamy Can Learn from Each Other. It wasn't like a debate, like which one is better, but it was a panel discussion kind of recognizing that different communities have their own wisdom that we can all learn from. So queer communities can teach us a lot about gender. Buddhist communities know a lot about the mind. Polyamorous people know a lot about handling jealousy, and that can help us all in life, no matter what relationship style that we are in. And another concept I think is beautiful one that everyone should know about is compersion. So... For those that don't know, what is compersion? Compersion is fundamentally empathic joy. So it's sharing the happiness of someone that you love. So it's participating in their joy, even if it doesn't involve you directly. And in the context of a consensually non-monogamous relationship, it is applied in the context of somebody sharing their lover's or their partner's joy when they're enjoying love and sexual activity with somebody else. So it's counterintuitive because usually we associate those situations in a monogamous paradigm with automatic jealousy. Right. But in a consensually non-monogamous context, jealousy will still arise or can still arise, but compersion is the idea that it can be the idea or the experience that you can also feel happy with them because that is a consensual situation and that you're entering in it with eyes open and heart open. So I call it a radical love phenomenon because it lies kind of on the outer edges of what socially we would conceive of as love. It's a concept that's very unique and very provocative also in a way because that's not a place where we normally look for love. Mm -hmm. It is radical and it's very different, I think, to what a lot of people's MO tends to be. And 
I'm almost imagining how he might begin to cultivate like joy in somebody else's joy, even in a, like a platonic sense. Like when your coworker comes to you and they're like, oh my gosh, I just got this promotion. I'm going to be making like this much more money. Mm-hmm. And then you're like, mm, like, <laughs> <laughs> like, especially if you are also wanting it. Mm-hmm. And that joy in someone else's joy uh, is not, an, I feel like a natural emotion that many people experience and we're more tempted to have envy of somebody that they have something that we want you know, or jealousy that they have something that might take away something that we have. Mm-hmm. So how do we go about cultivating compersion in our lives? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, compersion, really, you have to come to the realization that we are not completely separate. It's very fundamental to come from an ideal of connectedness and togetherness rather than separation. And that's why also compersion is is associated with the concept of mudita, which in Buddhism means that you share somebody else's joy and you're remedying the illusion of separation between you and another person. So instead of a zero-sum game, you're entering a paradigm where somebody else's joy should be of benefit for you. So that's the philosophical background. <laughs> right. And of course, life doesn't always follow philosophy. So in practice, what we can do is to, one, make an ideological commitment to trying to share somebody else's joy and to really look at where the jealousy or where the envy is coming from. We can use jealousy and envy as a big flashlight to look inside of ourselves as what are the things that I want and that I'm not getting in my life? Are there ways that I can find them? Are there ways that I can bring myself to to have them? And in the event where I'm not there and I'm not getting what I want, can I still find peace? It's a beautiful paradox between always working harder, you know, like towards what you want and finding your strength in that, but also finding surrender and inner peace just about the way that things are. And I would say that the third thing that we can do to cultivate compersion is to really go towards people that we feel envious of and jealous of and make more of a connection there. Oftentimes when I feel jealous of someone, like whether it's a coworker or a colleague or a family member or whoever seems to be getting something that I want, to go towards them with love and kindness and understanding their world oftentimes dissolves the edge of the jealousy because the jealousy often comes from this looking at them from a distance and not really connecting to them deeply and connecting to their heart deeply. So the more connection and inclusion, the more compersion or empathy there can be. So the more connection, the more compersion. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that goes together. So what I'm hearing is one, first we make an ideological commitment to feel more compersion in our life. And then two, we put the mirror on ourselves and see where our envy or jealousy is coming from. And then three, we actually turn towards this person that we are feeling some resistance to, mm-hmm. which I think is really beautiful. Like It almost demands a level of open-hearted presence. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, it can be really challenging, but sometimes to turn towards the trigger and really having a very sincere 
intention to be open-hearted towards that trigger can be the source of healing and the source of just creating something very different. So what have you found uh, in your research? Like, Is this a qualitative study where you're taking a bunch of surveys of people's compersion experience? What exactly are you looking into? I interviewed a bunch of people who do experience compersion, and I asked them, one, what is your experience of compersion? How does it come up in your body, in your mind, just to get a deeper description of what it is? Mm -hmm. And number two, what does it take for you to experience it? In what context does it come up? And in what context does it not come up? So that allowed me to build a bit of a map in terms of what, you know, what context can you build in yourself, in your relationship, and in your greater community to build a fertile terrain to compersion. Because it doesn't happen every time, everywhere for most people. It happens in particular spaces, in particular situations. So what kind of situations does a person more naturally feel compersion? One of the first things is a feeling of safety. So safety within themselves, feeling like they can have a sense of solidity within themselves that if their relationship were to be threatened in some way, it would not be the end of them. So oftentimes people who have that that sense of inner security are more likely to experience compersion. And then security within the relationship So if they feel like their relationship is already threatened or not really solid and already doing not so great, it will be harder to feel compersion for their partner when they're with somebody else. So in other words, if their plate is not full in the relationship, it's hard to feel that kind of generosity and impulse to say like, oh yes, I'm so happy for you that you're sharing your love with somebody else when you're feeling deprived. So we have to fill up our own cup first. Yeah, exactly. So we'll have to table compersion for another episode because our topic for today is mindful dating. And before we get into that, I want to learn a little bit more about you and what got you into the world of becoming a dating coach. Because I often wonder when and I meet anybody who says they're a dating coach, like what qualifications do they have? And I like to imagine that they went on like a thousand dates and, and gained experience in the matter. Um, but of course, that's not realistic now, is it? So why did you decide to become a dating coach? And what training brought you to where you are today? Well, it's maybe not realistic to go on thousands of dates. I don't know who has actually done that, but I can definitely say I've gone on a few hundreds. Wow. Yeah, I was an avid dater for many, many years. And that really came in the context of me being fascinated with human psychology and the way that people create their relationships. A lot of my path has been to really figure out, like, what do I want out of love? What do I want out of connecting with someone, whether it's a friendship or an intimate connection that involves sexuality and romance. I came into the world in a family that was non-traditional. My parents never got married and they never wanted to live together, but they wanted to have a child. So they had me and they decided to build more of a tribe around me where they would, you know, like have me like one week at a time. And it was very non-normative. So I grew up with this sense of freedom from the norm. Mm -hmm. 
And that always helped me question the Hollywood paradigm of relationship. Like I never went to to people thinking like, oh, my ultimate goal is just to, you know, like have a marriage, have 2.5 kids and live in the suburbs. I always considered relationships to be a creative space. And my dating journey was about refining my knowledge of people and my ability to know what I wanted. So the experiential side of my training was really significant. So a few hundred days and you're a researcher, so you have all these data points. And I'm wondering what conclusions you drew from all those points. <laughs> well, the conclusion about dating and now helping people with dating is that dating from a place of curiosity is a lot more fun than dating from a place of checking to see if people fit the mold or not. And that oftentimes lead to a lot of disappointment. So to really date from that place of openness and wanting to really get to know people is, is a way that you can keep the process really enriching and really fulfilling. Because I would always see my friends like go on dates and feel completely devastated if it quote-unquote didn't work. And if you have this paradigm of it either works or doesn't work and it's either a success with a very narrow definition of success or it's a failure, then you're bound to experience a lot of pain and disappointment and not really have that work for you. Hmm. I love that distinction. We, we want to date from a place of curiosity because it's a lot more fun than a place of evaluation and judgment and seeing if this person meets all your standards. All right, so back to what we were talking about before. And then you took some training. What qualifications brought you to being a dating coach? Well, my PhD in psychology has definitely helped me a lot understand the human mind and what, you know, how people construct meaning. So that, in terms of my official credentials, would be the, the bigger one. And also being on a spiritual path for many, many years and having been coached by many people, I know what it is to be on the other side of a coaching relationship and what really works. You know, how do you get to the bottom of things? How do you get to really like what a person actually wants and how to get there? So let's get to the bottom of things right now. Let's get to the bottom of this whole dating thing. And I think we should get the pandemic out of the way because life has changed for many of us. Now, many countries, it's interesting, have you know COVID relatively under control, that it's totally normal, that life is back to normal, I should say. Um, but you and I, we're still in the States. We're both in California right now under new orders to stay at home. And how has all this affected dating? Um, how has the pandemic changed dating? And how do you advise folks to continue their love lives when it's even hard to meet up with anybody, let alone go on a date? So it definitely has brought a focus more on the emotional connection rather than the physical connection right away. People are taking a lot longer before they meet in person and get into physical intimacy. So that is an interesting restriction, but also a bit of an opportunity for people to learn how to communicate effectively outside of the pheromone fuel in-person meetings or, you know, <laughs> when you have to socially distance and wear a mask, there are some inbuilt limitations there. So on the one hand, people are having to learn to have better conversations and to build that emotional intimacy. 
And on the other hand, people also have been given a lot of time and space to work on themselves and prepare themselves for their next relationships. So sometimes it feels like a delay, but what are you doing with this delay? Are you working on yourself? Are you becoming the person you want to be? And are you doing the deep visioning that you need to do to know what you're looking for when you're going into the dating world? I love that you said we've had a lot of time to prepare ourselves. I was just thinking the other day, I was like, well, I've read more books in this past year (laughs) than I think I did in the previous five. Because we have had a lot of time to kind of focus on whatever projects that we've been putting off because, you know, life and social obligations uh, were getting in the way. And you started out by saying, now we have the opportunity to to focus more on emotional connection rather than physical connection. Mm -hmm. And I'm almost imagining someone go, oh, no. (laughs) 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 My weak point. (laughs) Yes. So I think let's just make it more general real quick. What are some of the biggest obstacles that people face when dating? Because, I mean, we are trying our best to create that connection mentally, emotionally, physically. And a lot of people struggle with it. And so in your experience, what are the main obstacles people have? Number one is always the fear of rejection. That is the one thing that I think really comes up for people the most that I've seen in my practice. It is so normal because dating is just a big trigger for everything in us that is not feeling lovable. And we all have parts of us that don't feel completely healed and completely lovable and completely ready to love. And dating is this lab where we get to put a magnifier glass on all of those parts and feel the pain. And oftentimes that magnifier glass comes in the, in the form of rejection when we do develop an attraction, feelings for someone, and they don't get reciprocated. We just get so devastated and it can be reinterpreted as a, almost like a form of evidence that we're not lovable. So that probably is the number one thing that keeps people stuck, like the big, biggest obstacle that makes dating feel really painful and a bit of a, yeah, a bit of a chore rather than a process of exploration. Yeah, I'm thinking about the common way to break up with somebody or you say like, it's not you, it's me. Mm-hmm. It's not very comforting to hear, you know, like, of course it's me. Like, no. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Let's do it. like take somebody who's feeling who's been rejected and is now feeling dejected and has a lot of self-judgment and blame and are hesitant to even date again. What is your advice for someone going through such a struggle? Well, again, it's a little bit like envy and jealousy, right? Those painful emotions can always be used for our benefit if we make an ideological commitment again to use them mindfully and use them as a a flashlight inside of us to illuminate what are the parts of us that need some love. So, for example, beauty and physical attractiveness is something that comes up all the time. People, oftentimes, they don't feel like they're deeply attractive and deeply beautiful enough to attract the mate that they want. So how can you do a self-love practice that will 
send a signal to your own body that you are beautiful and lovable? Like, can you put lotion on yourself at night? Can you look at yourself in the mirror naked and send yourself some love and affirmations of, of beauty and appreciation? So things like that, you know, that can really boost your self-love. But also, love does not happen in isolation. Like we all need other people to co-regulate us and make us feel like we have a love-filled life. So one of the things that I always advise people is to not only work on their dating life, but work on their social life, work on their friendships, work on their family relationships. Are there blocks there where they can work on to experience more love and feel like they can just live with a heart open. And that really strengthens the, the nervous system to be more resilient to those instances of romantic rejection. So you mentioned how dating is this big trigger for everything in us that is not feeling lovable. But actually, when we do feel that envy and jealousy, it's a flashlight. So imagine this inner flashlight about pointing to the tender places and stuff that need healing. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned working on social life, and that was the first thing that came to mind is a lot of people do struggle with the apps and they forget that there are still people who meet through their social circles. And through one social circle is a really good way to find somebody of similar interest. You know, if you love hiking, go in a hiking group. If you love gaming, find a gaming group. And often you'll find people there with very similar interests to yours too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, we have to get creative, especially now that we are in a pandemic and we, you know, have restricted social scenes and a lot of it is happening online. We can't just rely on one route. Dating apps are amazing and I'm all for them because they open so many possibilities. I mean, I met my husband online, so I'm a big fan. But I always advise people like to really look at where else can they meet people? And to tap into their own network is a great idea to ask people that they know, like, hey, listen, I'm single, I'm open, I want to open my heart to somebody, I want a relationship. Do you know anyone I should meet? And people love that. People love to work for their friends and play Cupid. And that can be a way to tap people who, who might have similar interests and be, you know, like a few degrees of connection removed and people who are already vetted by somebody, you know, and yeah, social groups. Like uh, if someone is an entrepreneur, like, are you going to entrepreneur meetings and business networkings and Toastmasters, you know, like where can you meet people who are like-minded? It can be, really fulfilling. You can get a lot out of it. And then it allows you to meet a lot more people that are like-minded. So you mentioned that someone who experiences a lot of rejection is a wonderful time to cultivate self-love and to fill up one's own cup and to look at where that wounding might need some healing. And I'm wondering about the flip side of that, where it's not that you've been rejected, it's that you are rejecting people. (laughs) Mm -hmm. You know, and rejecting people is sometimes mutual. Like two people might meet and just find that there's no connection at all. And I'm wondering for the person who has gone on like 10 dates, 
and they haven't found the right person. And they've been like, wow, yeah, the, everyone I meet is just weird or, or, or like there's a, lot of, there's a lot of crazy people out there. Like they come to this conclusion that anybody in the single life is like not good and therefore there's no one out there for them. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering for someone who's been relatively unsuccessful at finding someone to connect with, what is your advice for them? So first of all, we can fine-tune our inner compass and our inner radar to not have to go on actual dates with everyone we meet. You know, like there's a way to see in advance what the problems and opportunities might be with people. So if you're going on 10 consecutive dates and all you have to say about all of those 10 people is they're weird, they're really, really not my type, then I would say that you haven't done enough screening before the dates. Hmm. So that's something that I teach people as a coach, you know, is how to do that screening from either an online dating profile or whatever information you have on hand so that you're at least going out with people who, okay, maybe not not everyone is going to become your partner, but people that you're going to enjoy at least having a date with. They're not going to be just be like weird people who have nothing in common with you. So that's A, it's screening. And then B is putting yourself in the right places. I see a lot of people just getting stuck on one app and complaining about everyone on that one app, but never really exploring other sites, other apps, or other ways to meet people. Like there's speed dating for all kinds of different affinity groups and interests. That's a really good way to meet people. And then there's other social clubs, like I mentioned, Toastmasters, there's meetups, there's so many places to meet people who share your interests. So yeah, don't limit yourself to online dating and certainly don't limit yourself to one app. So we want to fine-tune our inner compass and we want to make sure we put ourselves in the right places. And I feel like that's really wonderful first steps, right? And being closer to finding a person for a longer-term relationship. And so let's say we've gone on a few dates. What are some things we want to make sure not to do, I want to say? So what are like some of the biggest mistakes that you find people make on the first dates that they kind of self-sabotage the future success of the relationship? Well, one is to put the other person in either a box of failure or success. That kind of binary, like, okay, are you going to be the person or are you not? And then it becomes more of an interview or an interrogation rather than a real conversation. And when people are put on the spot like that, sometimes they don't even reveal their best selves because people can feel our judgment or our impatience or our lack of curiosity. So it will benefit the date. It will benefit everyone to come into it with a spirit of of just open curiosity. Because also you never know, even if this person is not your partner, they might be the bridge to your partner. So approaching every date in the spirit of open curiosity and friendship will definitely leave those doors more open and make the experience a lot more pleasant. Like I have to tell you, like out of those hundreds of dates I went on, uh, quite a few of those people who did not become my partner, obviously, became my friends. 
people that I'm still in touch with years later and I cherish in my life. So people, I think, have the very destructive mindset of just putting people in one container, yes, or the other container, no. And then when they put the people in the yes container, like, yes, you fit my list, then they start changing their behavior. They start really seeking approval rather than continuing to be themselves. And that can also really change the dynamic. Yes, that's so important. No one wants to go on a first date and feel like it's an interview, right? And they feel like they're being interrogated. I remember one really good piece of advice for first dates is to almost like find something to do together. Like it could be going for a walk together. Just because like side by side and talking it tends to be a lot more conducive to, towards connection rather than the facing each other, I'm interviewing you, you're interviewing me kind of process. Yeah, I like the idea that a first date should really just be kind of a low investment uh, way of figuring out if you want to go on a real date with them, which would be the second date. So the first date should not normally be like a whole meal. It should be a coffee, a cocktail, a walk, something where you're not putting a lot of time and money and you're not getting stuck with someone across from the table and in that pressure kind of format. If you feel like you vibe after the coffee, then you can always schedule a second date and then you walk into it already knowing that you're going to be more comfortable. So we've already got some super awesome tips for anyone entering the dating life, but this isn't an episode on dating. This is an episode on mindful dating. Mm -hmm. So you write about... (laughs) (laughs) Now you're you're getting my interest. (laughs) So you write and talk about dating as a spiritual practice. Mm -hmm. And I want to, I want to know so much about that because I love the beginning transformation of relationships in general as a spiritual practice because they're just an amazing container for healing healing and growth. But dating as a spiritual practice, that sounds pretty radical. So tell our listeners what that means. You know, my favorite quote is Rumi's quote where he says, your job is not to look for love, it's to look for all the barriers you've built against it and then put those barriers down. So I think that oftentimes in dating, we get faced with all of those barriers and it's such a beautiful mirror. We really get to see where our hearts are closed or where we're not seeing people correctly, where our discernment is not really attuned. And we can use that as a mindfulness practice to really ask ourselves at any point in the dating process, like, how am I feeling right now? Like, what is getting excited? What is getting aroused? What is getting triggered? What is getting uncomfortable? And where is all of that coming from? So it's like any other relationships where they can act as a mirror to help us with our self-awareness, help us know ourselves better and know where we need some healing and where we'll need some more self-love. But with dating, it's even more profound than with friendships oftentimes because it does invoke all of that vulnerable stuff around partnership and sexuality and intimacy and am I desirable? And it can help us build ourselves to the point where we are resilient to rejection and resilient to disappointment and keep 
a very deep anchor into who we are. To me, in a way, spirituality is to really build that anchor inside and to love ourselves no matter what. And dating can provide a lot of those wins and different situations where that anchor gets tested and has an opportunity to get strengthened. So the situation you're describing sounds like a very similar advice I hear from a lot of awakened gurus, so to speak, which is that everything we encounter on the path can become part of our path. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people are like, oh, I can't practice, you know, I have to take care of my kids. And it's like, well, taking care of your kids is now your practice. <laughs> and whether you're single or in a relationship, whatever you're going through in life is part of your practice. And dating can bring up so much. It can bring up projection. It can also bring up excitement. Excitement. We can also notice all the ways that we can become attached to, you know, like, this is the best person ever. They're going to solve all my, my problems in life. <laughs> and then, of course, they don't. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That's really that's really what it is. That's really how I feel about spirituality and dating, is that it shouldn't be on the outside of our spiritual path. Oftentimes, I meet people in my practice. I tend to attract a lot of people who are on a spiritual path, but feel that there is a contradiction between their spirituality and their dating life. And oftentimes, that comes from having internalized so many messages around dating and relationships and what they should want and what they should look like. And the process of dating can be used to disentangle those external messages from what it is that they really crave deeply. So that's another part of the spiritual path is to disentangle those external voices from the voice of our own heart and intuition. So I love all this advice you're giving around using dating to notice what's going on inside of us to be mindful. And I'm wondering kind of like what that looks like in person. You know, when I think about practicing mindfulness, I think about sitting down to meditate or doing slow Tai Chi movements. And I'm not going to do that in the middle of a date. <laughs> I don't know, maybe, I am. maybe we'll go on a Tai Chi date. Oh, that's actually a good idea. That would be a fun, creative date. <laughs> And, you know, or if you're swiping through Tinder or Bumble or something, um, what it might look like to check in. So let's say I'm a fly in the wall of two people who are really mindfully dating. Like, what are some things I'm going to see or notice? Yeah, well, actually, swiping is a great opportunity to practice mindfulness. I think mindful swiping can really be a thing where you are looking at people's profile and instead of just staying in your head, wondering like, oh, are they hot? Are they not hot? (laughs) You can go deeper into your gut and wonder, ask the question, does my heart feel safe with them? Are they a good person? Do I feel kindness? Do I feel potential connection? And to ask a different part of yourself instead of just asking the top layer of your head, ask your body, ask your heart, try to access that deeper source of knowing. So that's the first step. And then once you match with someone, once you're in connection with someone, can you stay in that state of embodied knowing and connectedness while you're doing the communication? Like, are you playing games or are you being really authentic and from the heart? Or when I say games, you know, I'm not just saying manipulation and wanting to get something from someone. But of course, that is a big part of it. But are you playing small? Are you hiding to really 
question, you know, and do that self-examination at every step of the process. And then when you end up meeting in person, you know, two people mindfully dating would also ask themselves at each step of the process, where am I with all this? Is my heart feeling at ease with this person? Am I projecting stuff on them, either positive or negative? Like check against reality. Like am I, am I perceiving things clearly? It can be quite an amazing path. Indeed, just the concept of slowing down is really coming up for me when I listen to you to listen to your body, listen to your heart, follow your gut and tap into a deep sense of intuition. All this comes down to me to just like taking time to pause, breathe and check in. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I'm almost imagining someone on a dating app or swiping and then they're like, oh, I should check in with myself. Am I like happy right now? And then they're like, nope. (laughs) (laughs) Actually, I'm not enjoying this at all. Because dating for a lot of people is is a means to an end, right? I think a lot of people almost put up with the whole dating process because they want a long-term partner or multiple partners again. You know, it's a, it's a means to an end and that they, it's something they have to do in order to get the thing that they want. So for the person that's just not enjoying themselves, it's tired of swiping right and swiping left and filling out profiles, you know, what is your advice for them? Well, I mean, if you're really not happy, you have to also understand that this is not your only way to go. Online dating is one of the ways that you can find a partner. And again, there's so many other ways. So to, to not put yourself in a situation where you're feeling stuck with one route. But then also to not dismiss the process, like whatever emotions are coming up, that kind of frustration and feeling like, ugh, like this is such a chore. To also use that and look at that and look at what part is really in pain there. Because there's emotional charge in those feelings. It's not just like, oh, I'm just kind of, I would rather be doing something else. Like maybe if you're doing your laundry and you're like, well, it's not my favorite thing to do, but I have to do it. It's means to an end. There isn't as much emotion there. When people get frustrated with dating, there's something a lot deeper going on because there's so much at stake. So to really not just turn away and give in to the frustration and and to look inside. Like that's a bit of a hardcore thing to ask, but that's one of the ways that you can make it better. And of course, to to tap other sources and to be able to put the app down sometimes and just take care of yourself. Like to ask yourself, well, what will make me happy and not feel like you're bound to do this. I really enjoy your encouragement of being with. There's a story of a guru who has asked, what's the key to enlightenment? And he basically asked, well, what are you unwilling to feel? Mm-hmm. And oftentimes those challenging emotions that come up in dating, in relationships, we push them away. And I keep hearing from you, welcome it in, be present with it, notice where it's coming from, and almost tend and befriend the challenging things that come up when dating. Absolutely. And I, you know, the more you do that work, the higher the quality of your relationship 
will be when you finally find this person because you will have gone to those places. So every investment that you make in that arena is going to pay off. You know, it's kind of silly, but when you're mentioning mindful dating, being like, oh, being in touch with your heart, being in touch with your emotions, becoming embodied, I'm like, wow, that's really attractive, those qualities. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. So, you know, I'm curious when you're encouraging mindful dating and when not with your clients, do you find that they're more successful? Well, it depends how you define success. Mm. You know, like they might fine-tune their inner compass and then from that place realize like, oh, actually, I don't want to go on three dates a week. I realize that I'm looking for something even more special and even more refined or, you know, like my filter has become even better than before. So they might go on less dates, but those that they go on are better and they're a lot more productive. So yeah, I think they become more successful because they also can wrap dating into a greater sense of meaning rather than having it be a, a chore and a source of frustration in their life. They can, they can really use it for their benefit. Absolutely. Thanks so much, Mary. You know, I, I, I almost said I wish I didn't have a partner right now, but I don't want to say that. Um, <laughs> well, so. so you could do a mindful uh, dating. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> it's, like, it's such good advice. I want to try it out. Well, the tools of mindful dating are actually quite similar to the tools of mindful relationship. And that's the good news. That's another reason why you should do mindful dating now if you're single is all of those skills and all of that inquiry that you're doing now. It's the skills of intimacy. It's the skill of having a mindful relationship where when you are in connection with someone, you keep asking yourself those questions. Things are going to keep coming up. Rejection and jealousy are going to keep coming up. But then you're going to have a partner to play with. It's going to come up in different circumstances. You're going to have to have difficult conversations to keep the glue going in your relationship. So it's not really that different. Absolutely. It overflows to all areas of our life, This the qualities that we're trying to cultivate here. Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes I think like my style of dating coaching is a little bit like life and spiritual coaching disguised as dating coaching because mm-hmm. <laughs> really it's it's very encompassing. But if you apply those skills to dating, it gives you a great format to to practice. And it's usually a place of a lot of confusion and pain. So it's the perfect place to work on. Well, thank you so much, Marie, for your wonderful advice. I hope all of our listeners in the dating field begin to shift their perspective to just a more open-hearted and a more present way of going about their dating lives. And I want to finish by asking you a question I love to ask all of my guests, which is quite simply, what do you wish everyone knew about love? Hmm, I love that question. (laughs) You know, I think that we grew up in a society that paints a picture of love that is very narrow. Hollywood and the media has painted a picture of romantic relationships, especially as something very specific. But I wish everyone knew that it doesn't have to look that way. It will look very differently for each person at different stages of their life. Even on over the course of a long-term relationship, what keeps you together will change and the, lo- and the quality of the love will change. And 
it's the great adventure of life to welcome those changes and not to get attached to one version of what we think love is. So if we grow up in a society that paints a picture of love that is very narrow and it can be different for any person, tell us just a bit more about that expansive view of love. Well, it kind of come back, comes back to why I became a dating coach, you know, like in my upbringing in a family structure that was very different from what society had painted as the, the norm of family structures. People oftentimes would not have imagined you can have a, a child outside of cohabitating with a romantic partner. You, you can. <laughs> you can build a love environment without those traditional structures. It's the same thing with monogamy and non-monogamy. There's a whole spectrum of possibilities between the polarities, you know, of what we think of as monogamy and then what we think of as polyamory. Some people are all the way, you know, like in between and you can change over the course of your life the ways that you feel like relating to other people. Friendships. Oftentimes we think about friendship as those kind of limited and necessarily platonic relationships. And there's a certain politeness that we apply to our friends and sometimes we don't go as deep as we would with a romantic partner. But why does that have to be the case? Sometimes we can have really deep friendships and maybe there is a level of attraction and sensuality or sexuality involved. So there's so many flavors of love or in long-term relationships, you know, like sometimes the sexuality can change. I mean, it will change if you stay with someone for a long time. And then how do you redefine love as your connection, your sexual connection, but also your emotional connection and your circumstances change dramatically. So it's a constant redefinition and re-experiencing and, you know, can, can you experience and welcome love with fresh eyes and a fresh heart every day. Approach love with a fresh heart and fresh eyes every day. <laughs> ah, so many possibilities. I hope people realize that. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you so much, Marie, for coming on to the show and sharing us your mindful wisdom. And for our listeners that want to learn more about you, how can they find you? Yeah, so my website is loveinsight-dating.com. So love insight, all in one word, dash dating.com. And I'm on Facebook and Instagram. Facebook is my name, Marie Tuin. And my Instagram is at love underscore insight underscore dating. So please connect with me. I do free introductory sessions with whoever is interested in dating coaching with me. And I love to meet new people. So please reach out. So in your initial session with your clients, do you do it from a place of curiosity or from a place of <laughs> evaluation? <laughs> oh, you can never totally put the logistics aside in <laughs> human relationships, but it definitely is a process of inquiry. Thank you so much, Marie, for coming on to the show. And thank you, listeners, for listening to the show. We hope you recognize you can bring mindfulness into all areas of your life, including swiping left and right, including dating with new people. And in every moment, you can tap into your heart, tap into your body, tap into your intuition in a deep source of knowing within you. 
Unfortunately, the mindful dating skills that you cultivate now will help you in the future relationship that you are building as all the skills for intimacy overlap so wonderfully. Thanks again for listening to the show. If you want to learn more about me, you can head to zachbeach.com and learn more about the show at theheartcenter.com. Thanks again, Marie. Thank you for having me. Thanks again for listening to the Learn to Love podcast. To learn more about the show and your host, head over to zachbeach.com or theheartcenter.com. You can also follow Zach on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. 